Good morning, church family. The book of Psalms tells us, I will bless the Lord. His praises shall forever be in my mouth. And brothers and sisters, we must always find some aspect to praise God for, whether it's a good time, whether it's a bad time, whether we're happy or sad, there's always something that we can give God the praise for. I'm so happy on this Sunday morning to give you my praise through the preach word of God and by letting you all know not what's on my heart, but what God has given me to tell you, to encourage you throughout the remainder of this week. Before I get into the word, I just want to congratulate my good friend, Eugene Williams. He brought a great word last Sunday morning, but he also was ordained last Sunday. So he's no longer just Minister Eugene Williams. Now he's the Reverend Eugene Williams. So I'm so excited for that. And now that he's been sealed and confirmed in this great calling of preaching the word of God. So you'll hear more from him in the future and you'll see him now with a little tagline that says Reverend, not Minister, Reverend Eugene Williams. That's always something exciting in the life of the church. Nonetheless, our word from the Lord this Sunday is coming from Judges chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. That's Judges chapter 16, verses 30 and 31. The Bible says, then Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. He strained with all of his might and the house fell on the Lord's and all the people who were in it. So those he killed at his death were more than those he had killed during his life. Then his brothers and all of his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of his father, Manoah. He had judged Israel for 20 years. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of this word. Brothers and sisters, on this Sunday morning, I want to talk or preach from a very serious topic, and in some cases, a very somber topic. And it is on the topic of death. And I want us to realize, and I want you all to be patient with me and move with me through this sermon, through understanding that the power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. I said the power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King called death one of co life's common denominators, brothers and sisters. But to make it a little bit more plain, one of the gospel or one of the prophets of, of my era that I enjoy the most, one of the ghetto gospel prophets, Tupac Amari Shakur, he said, why am I fighting to live if I'm just living to fight? What am I trying to see if there's nothing in sight? Why am I trying to give when no one gives me a try? Why am I dying to live if I'm just living to die? Brothers and sisters, this concept of death is a perplexing subject. It is something we all face, but something we do not often discuss or like to think about because of how somber and sad it is. But brothers and sisters, it's in the church that I think we should address death. 
You see, it's through the veil of death we consider the life we've lived. It's through the threat of death that we grasp at life the most. We all want to go to heaven, but none of us want to die to get there. You see, the power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. And brothers and sisters, it's through truly analyzing what the Bible says about death. It's truly analyzing how God uses death and moves through death that should shape our perspectives and understanding of death. Let me show you in the New Testament, God uses Jesus to give us a different perspective of death. You remember in Luke chapter 9, verse 60, Jesus is out walking and he's with his disciples and some other individuals come up to Jesus and they say they want to follow him, but first they have to go bury their father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead, but go proclaim the kingdom of God. That's a different perspective on Death and grieving. Brothers and sisters, when we look at death, we have to go to the story of Lazarus in the New Testament and look how Jesus handled Lazarus' death. You see, Lazarus was sick and the word was sent by Mary and Martha to Jesus about Lazarus being sick. And instead of rushing to see Lazarus, to heal Lazarus, Jesus waits until he dies. Not only does he wait until he dies, but waits until he dies and is buried in the tomb, brothers and sisters, before he even gets there. And he tells the disciples, he says, we're going to go and wake Lazarus up from sleep. That's a different perspective of death. And the disciples say, well, if he's asleep, he'll be all right. But Jesus said to them, let, let me just make it plain, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad he's dead for your sake so that you may believe in the power of God. And you know how the story goes. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, even in the absence of belief. Brothers and sisters, maybe it's not in Luke. Maybe it's not Lazarus. Maybe it's the story of Jairus' daughter for you. Jesus has just exercised these demons out of a man. And this man Another man comes to Jesus and asks him to heal his daughter. And while he's coming out from just having pulled these demons out of another man before he can even get a break, a second man says, can you come and heal my daughter? And his name was Jairus. And, 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 and brothers and sister Jesus agrees to this. And while he's on his way to Jairus' house, this is when the woman with the issue of blood comes and touches the hem of his garment. But while he's dealing with her, Jairus' people come out of the house and say, don't worry about bothering the teacher. Your daughter's already dead. But Jesus doesn't pay attention to their understanding of death. Jesus doesn't deal with their understanding of death by letting that stop him. He still goes in the house and he notices all the confusion. He notices all the sadness and he says, why are you upset? And they tell him again that Jairus' daughter is dead. And he says, oh, she's merely sleeping. And they laugh at him and they mock him and he goes into the room with Jairus' daughter and commands her, little girl, get up. And she gets up. Brothers and sisters, 
This is a different perspective of death. Jesus calls death sleeping. And brothers and sisters, as believers, we have to have a different concept of death. We have to have a different understanding of death. We have to be reminded that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13, it says, but we do not have, it says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those that have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe in Jesus, or since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself with a cry of command, with the archangels call with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Brothers and sisters, last month, we witnessed the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the killing of George Floyd. During that trial, Dante Wright was killed during a routine traffic stop by police. And the day after Derek Chauvin's trial, we learned about the killing of Micaiah Bryant by police. And before George Floyd, before Dante Wright, before Makai Bryant, we had Breonna Taylor. Before Breonna Taylor, we had Rashad Brooks, we had Ahmaud Aubrey, we had Sandra Bland, we had Eric Gardner, we had Alton Sterling, we had Philando Castillo, we had Michael Brown, we had Tamir Rice, we had Trayvon Martin, we've had countless other people who have died who didn't even get publicity. Brothers and sisters, people have died at the hand of police brutality and racial injustice for years. But since the national attention from the case of Trayvon Martin and George Zimmerman, it seems as though there have been an overwhelming trend of coverage of the death of black people because of racism in America. You see, the individual and collective deaths of our brothers and sisters have had more influence on America and the world in death than they ever did alive. And brothers and sisters, we're talking about death this Sunday morning because if you think that by the continuation of watching these tragedies and hearing about death, week after week, month after month, watching the video footage of someone take someone else's life doesn't impact your mind, doesn't impact your spirit. I came to let you know this Sunday morning, it does. I came to let you know this Sunday morning, we subconsciously are dealing with the psychological trauma of witnessing death. And not only witnessing death, but witnessing the death of people that look like me and you. 
that does something to you psychologically, that does something to you spiritually. And sometimes that might even get you to the point where you begin to ask God questions. God, where are you in the midst of these tragedies? Lord, what are you doing in the world with the death of these children, the death of your children? Why are you letting it happen? Lord, these are questions that sometimes muster up in the spirit. But brothers and sisters, I came to give you encouragement this morning. I came to let you know this morning that God is teaching us how death can transform our understanding of life. I came to let you know this morning that God is teaching us that the absence of life reveals the presence of God. That God is teaching us that the power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. I'm reminded of the words of Frederick Douglass that said, there is no progress without struggle. That through the collective struggles of the sacrifices of our brothers and sisters' lives, we've seen the progress of our justice system and the progress of America finally dealing with its original sin of white supremacy. Brothers and sisters, judges, Chapter 16, verse 30 is an example of how God uses death to reveal his power. How God uses death to free his people. About how God uses death as a reminder of the severity of getting too comfortable in life. It is a reminder that our daily struggles are real. But we serve a God who is also real. In Judges 16, the text says Samson killed more in death than he did alive. Samson's death was more influential than his life. In Samson's life, we see the power of God is equally present in his death. To give you context to the text, brothers and sisters, we must examine the book of Judges. And so you can get a full frame of this picture that we're painting. I want you to understand the book of Judges is a very violent book filled with death. The book of Judges comes about after Joshua has led the Israelites into the promised land and the Israelites have gotten comfortable in the promise. The Israelites have gotten so comfortable that they've turned away from a God that has blessed them, a God that has brought them from slavery through the wilderness and now into the promise. And they've started doing things that completely offend God. They start worshiping the gods of the Canaanites. They start worshiping the gods of the Philistines. They start worshiping the gods of the other cultures and pagan races that did not believe in God. And God is trying to understand, after all I've done for you, why don't you see that all you have to be is loyal to me and I'll deliver you time and time again. So brothers and sisters, the book of Judges symbolizes how God raised up leaders to deliver Israel from their unfaithfulness. In the book of Judges, you'll notice there are cycles. There are cycles of the Israelites being unfaithful. And then when they repent, God raises up a judge 
so that then they can be delivered from oppression. And then every time they're raised from oppression and delivered from oppression after having done wrong, they get comfortable again. They start worshiping other gods again. They fall victim to the system again. And then they start going back down on a decline. And then they repent. And then God raises up another judge. And we see this cycle of disobedience leads to punishment. And then they repent, which leads to deliverance. But then they go back to disobedience and we see this cycle again. And brothers and sisters in our lives, sometimes we find ourselves in this cycle again. Where we're faithful and then we're disobedient and then we repent. And then God raises us up only for us to fall down. And it's this cycle again. But brothers and sisters, God is faithful. And in the book of Judges, we notice and we are reminded of several judges that come to the aid of Israel. There's about 15 judges that are expressed throughout the book of Judges, but some of the more popular ones are ones such as Gideon, ones such as Deborah, and the one we'll be talking about today known as Samson. And what the book of Judges really shows us is how God uses imperfect people to uplift his perfect will. That how even in the midst of these judges not being the perfect ones, not being the best ones, having their own issues, God still uses their fallibility, their sin, their wrongness to still elevate and save the people of Israel. Brothers and sisters, the text tells us or use this theme in words over and over again where it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And brothers and sisters, we see because they had no king, they were like a group of people with no leader. And they just did whatever they wanted to do. Whatever they wanted to do. But despite that, God raises up a judge in Samson. And Samson is known as a Nazarite. And Nazarites are ordained by God to serve God. And from birth, they cannot eat any, any grapes. They cannot eat any unclean food. They cannot drink any wine or alcohol. And the text specifically says they cannot cut their hair. And it actually uses the words, they cannot cut their locks. So therefore, brothers and sisters, that lets you know Samson, who was a Nazarite, was a black man with dreads. And brothers and sisters, we are reminded of the stigma with, of dreadlocks. When you hear the term dreadlocks, it comes from that idea of people having a negative connotation for those that have dreads. But if you knew what the Bible said about it, brothers and sisters, that would give you a different perspective of locks. Because it tells us back in the book of Numbers that those that had locks at that time were those that were the direct Nazarites meaning the direct people that were supposed to only be born into and initiated into this system to serve God. So therefore, be careful who you talk about because what they look like. Because brothers and sisters, we see even in the Bible, these locks were ordained by God. Nonetheless, brothers and sisters, Samson was a black man with locks. 
And although Samson was a black man with locks, he is known for his strength. He is known for his violence. The text tells us that Samson killed over a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey. That Samson killed a lion while he was on his way to get his wife with the Philistine. That Samson catches over 300 foxes and ties their tails together and sets them on fire to burn up the field of the Philistine. Brothers and sisters, the text is trying to show us that Samson is a big, strong black man with dreadlocks. And brothers and sisters, although Samson is big and strong and has long locks in his hair, Samson has a weakness. And Samson's weakness is his desire of the flesh. Samson's weakness, as it is revealed, is his own desires to fulfill his own agenda. But brothers and sisters, through that we realize that Samson's initial weakness, moving past his first wife to his second wife, which is known as Delilah, comes in play where Delilah sets him up to be killed. And brothers and sisters, you know the story. Delilah asked Samson what is the source of his strength, and Samson won't tell her at first. Delilah asked Samson the first time, what is the source of your strength? He's like, oh, you just, you, you, know, you know, you can just subdue me by tying me up with arrow strings. And so she ties him up and the text says he breaks the arrow strings like thread. And then she gets upset because she, he, he won't tell her the truth. So then he, she asked him a second time. She said, what is the source of your strength? How can you be subdued? And he said, get fresh new ropes and tie me up and I won't be able to be overcome. And, he, and, 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 and the text tells us that Delilah ties him up and says, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson breaks the ropes just like those are threads. And then the third time she comes back and asks him again and she's crying and she's upset. And she's like, why won't you tell me the source of your strength? And he says, oh, just tie up my hair. And the text says they took his seven locks and, and, and tied up his hair. And the same thing happens where she calls for the Philistines to overthrow him. And he gets up. And he defeats them. But it's the final time, the fourth time, that he reveals that the source of his strength comes from his hair and the cutting of his hair, that now he is defeated. And brothers and sisters, when he is defeated, the Philistines are so excited, they throw a party to their god, Dogon. Dogon is, is, is a pagan god in which they worship through sacrificing babies and through all types of food and, and, and offerings they give to this god, Dogon. So they celebrate Samson's demise by gulging out his eyes and taking him in this temple and throwing a big party. And Samson's in the temple and it says all the Philistines are in this temple. And Samson is tied up to a pillar and then here we are in verse 30, where Samson calls out to God and asks God to give him the strength to destroy all of the Philistines. And brothers and sisters, God gives him the strength. And in doing this, he kills himself and kills all of the Philistines. And the text tells us that he kills more in his death than he ever did alive. And brothers and sisters, the point that I'm trying to illustrate 
It's not that we need to go out killing. It's not that we need to seek carnal revenge. But what I'm trying to show you is that God still works in the midst of death. That in the midst of Samson's fallibility, in the midst of Samson's lust for the flesh and of women, in the midst of Samson being swayed, God's agenda of freeing the Philistines was still relevant and prevailed. That the Israelites were freed from the power of the Philistines through Samson destroying them in the temple. And then we realize, although it's an ugly truth, although it's a sad truth, the sacrifice of Samson is what brought the liberation of God's people. And brothers and sisters, we see that sacrifice, in many cases, brings liberation. And in order for us to have freedom and liberation, it requires some aspect of sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, even in the Old Testament, God uses death to transform his people's quality of life. Historically, before the death of those names I've listed earlier, we've seen the sacrifice of our ancestors for us to have a better quality of life. We've seen the sacrifice of Emmett Till. We've seen the sacrifice of those four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robinson, and Denise McNair. We've seen the sacrifice of Medgar Evers. We've seen the sacrifice of Jimmy Lee Jackson. We've seen the sacrifice of Viola Russo. We've seen the sacrifice of Fred Hampton from the Black Panther Party. We've seen the sacrifice of Malcolm X. We've seen the sacrifice of Martin Luther King. We've seen the sacrifice of so many of our people so that we could have the freedoms we have today. We see the power of God is equally present in their death as it was in their life. It is through their collective sacrifices that we have the freedoms we have today. You see, their sacrifice is a reminder that freedom isn't free. Their sacrifice is a reminder that somebody must pay the cost. James Weldon Johnson said, we have come over a way with tears have been watered. We have come treading a path through the blood of the slaughtered. Brothers and sisters, it's a harsh reality that takes violence and death for humanity to see the necessity to change. I said, it's a harsh reality when we come to the understanding that sometimes, or historically I should say, it's taken violence and death for humanity to see the necessity to change. Not too long ago, you all will remember I was away at military training and one of the most miraculous things happened while I was at training. We were doing a workshop where they got all the different soldiers from different units to come together. And in this workshop, it was about addressing violence and terrorism and being able to identify the signs of people that were extremists and possibly terrorists within our ranks, right? 
And while we're talking about this, we're kind of skating around the subject of race. We're kind of skating around the subject of all the different things that are quite prevalent in America. You know, we pointed out the examples of, of Nazis and neo-Nazis. We never quite got around to addressing and calling out the Ku Klux Klan. But one thing a soldier did that changed my perspective of where we are in America is we had an older white man stand up. And he stands up and he says, well, let me give you the Appalachian perspective. Basically, like, let me give you the white perspective on all this that's, that's going on or some of the origins of it. And he stands up and everybody around him that looks like him seems like, yeah, they're excited. Like, he's going to tell them. He's going he's to advocate for, for, for whatever they're thinking he's going to advocate for. But their faces immediately turned red when he started talking about the Confederate flag. And he talked about how even to this day, it's been difficult for him, but he's done it. How he's denounced the flying of the Confederate flag because he knew that its origin, when it was first flown, was to distinguish the whites in the South that knew that they didn't want their children going to school with black children. That they didn't want their children eating in the same places that black children ate. That they didn't want their children even serving in the military with other black people. He said that flag has historically been a symbol of hate and a symbol of division. And this was the time to address it. And he said he knows a lot of people say it's not hate, it's heritage. And talk about all of the people that have died in their family and how they're just flying it to commemorate them. But he said, let's be honest. We know what it's about. It's about divisiveness and it's about separation of race based off of color. And brothers and sisters, after he said that it was older soldiers that had been in the military in the early 80s had enlisted in the early 90s that came up to him and came up to me and said they had never witnessed a white man get up and denounce a flag or denounce racism the way he did publicly and it meant something to them because they knew change had come. They knew a change was coming. And brothers and sisters, I would make the argument that it's through all of the deaths we've seen. It's through the injustices we've seen. It's through all of the heinous crimes against humanity we've seen in the death of our brothers and sisters. That over time has challenged the white mindset, has challenged the ideals that are prevalent and have really woven together the fabric of our American society. You all have seen it. It's not been just black people out marching and protesting. It's also been white people that have been out there too saying black lives matter. But brothers and sisters, there is still a contrast between what took place in the civil rights movement in the past and what's taking place today. And that's that understanding of the power of death, the power of sacrifice, and by going to the any means necessary mindset to achieve a greater good. Brothers and sisters, in today's world, when we protest, we get our sign. 
It says Black Lives Matter. We run around with that. We, we, we riot. And, and in some cases, not all of us, I know not you, we loot. We get on social media and make a post, but our ancestors, they didn't just do that. They did their homework. You see, what's different in today versus what happened yesterday is we're more reactionary, but they were more proactive. Brothers and sisters, our ancestors had organizations such as the SCLC, had organizations such as CORE, had organizations such as the Urban League, had organizations such as the NAACP, and they would examine the laws of the land, and they would directly go out and challenge the laws of the land put out by our Constitution and say that if we're citizens and if we're human beings, we're going to challenge these laws by putting our life on the Brothers and sisters, many of us don't even know what our amendments are. Many of us don't even know what the Constitution stands for. In the 14th Amendment, it says, No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process. And brothers and sisters, when these organizations such as CORE, such as the NAACP, such as the Urban League found out about that, they organized sit-ins, they organized boycotts, and the protest and all of the things that came with it were the last phase of the organized movement. And brothers and sisters, they took the time to analyze what America said its laws were and the way that we were being treated as a race of people. And they said, we'll put our life on the lines so that our children and our children's children will have a better quality of life than we have today. And brothers and sisters, there's an interesting story. There's a story about a group of people that used to ride buses down to the South and they were called freedom riders. And these freedom riders would get on buses and challenge these amendments, challenge these laws by driving in on these buses, white and black people, mostly of college age, into the most racist areas in the South. We're talking about Georgia. We're talking about Mississippi. We're talking about Alabama. And they would drive down to these areas and they would sing hymns. And they would sing songs, I ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. They would sing hymns about being, plant, being like a tree planted by, by the waters and not being moved. They would bring God with them on this journey because that was the type of faith they had. And brothers and sisters, there's a story about how these freedom riders had planned to make a trip down south. And Robert Kennedy, who was John F. Kennedy, the president at the time's brother, whose attorney general sent his assistant to these freedom riders. And he sent his assistant to these freedom riders to beg them not to get on the bus to go into the South to protest through this movement. He said, you all could be severely injured. He said, you all could be killed. And let me tell you what the protesters said, brothers and sisters. One of the protesters said, sir, you should know We've all signed our last wills and testaments last night before we left on this bus. Because we know that someone will be killed, but we cannot let violence 
overcome nonviolence. And brothers and sisters, I just want to let somebody know we come from a race of people that have put their lives on the line. We come from a race of people that have been dying. We come from a race of people that have put God to the test and say, I'll go to any means necessary to be treated with respect and I'll go trusting in you, God. So brothers and sisters, this aspect of death in American society isn't anything new. This aspect of death it's something we've always dealt with throughout millennia. Yes, our memories gotten short. Yes, we've forgotten, but we've been dying. Death is no stranger to us. But the difference between then and now, brothers and sisters, is we become like the Israelites. We become like the Israelites, and we've forgotten how God brought us through Savior. We forgot us how God brought us through the wilderness of segregation. And now that we think we're in the promised land, we've begun to assimilate with the culture. And instead of demanding respect by any means necessary, we are now seeking validation. And brothers and sisters, seeking validation is one of those subtle sins that God hates. Because when we seek validation from the world, when we seek to gain the world, we lose our connection with God. When we seek to be a part of people that have never respected or wanted to be a part of us or wanted us to be connected to them, we die. And we're killed spiritually and physically. Brothers and sisters, we find ourselves seeking validation. We have this anglophilic mindset that white is right. And the closer we get to whiteness, the better our lives will be. Oh, I know what some of us are thinking. I don't know what you're talking about, Pastor. I ain't trying to be white. Oh, oh, oh well, 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 let me call it out. Some of us aren't happy until our children have gone to white schools. Some of us will downplay a historically bad college or university just to get the children in a white school. Some of us aren't happy until we changed our area code or changed our zip code and moved into a white area. Some of us aren't happy until we're working with a white or working for a white company. Brothers and sisters, we subconsciously are seeking validation now that we've integrated in the system. It's moving from or we've moved from demanding respect to seeking validation. And brothers and sisters, although in America whiteness has been deemed the standard of success, our success as Christians comes from a connection with God. You see, there's a difference between demanding respect from someone and seeking validation. And you can still hear it as we march around and say, we matter. Please let us matter to you. Please let us be something to you. Value us. No, 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 no. We used to demand respect where the signs used to say, I am a man. I am a woman. I'm not a boy. I'm not a girl that you're just going to call that name and I'm older than you. Brothers and sisters, we used to demand respect instead of seeking validation. And when we seek validation, we suddenly have elevated the necessity to be closer to whiteness as priority.
opposed to our connection to God. Exodus 20 verse 5 says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. And brothers and sisters, every time we're in the gray area, of demanding respect and seeking validation from God. God reminds us through death that the people we seek validation from never respected us. That things may have changed, but nothing's changed. That we still have work to do and we've not completely overcome. I believe that's why James Weldon Johnson at the end of Left Every Voice and Sing, wrote the words, lest our feet stray from the place, our God, where we met thee. Lest our hearts drunk with the wine of the world, we forget thee. That's drunk with the wine of now we've integrated and now we can go to their schools. Drunk with the wine of now we can sit at the tables and not be beaten up or not be treated inferior. Now we're drunk with the wines of being able to work in the same work environment and make almost the same salary. Now we're drunk with the wine of feeling like we're almost there. Brothers and sisters, like the judges, God uses the death of flawed men and women to redirect our attention to him. God did not call us to be validated by people or conform to the things of this world. God called us to be set apart. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race a royal peace priesthood, a holy nation, a people who are God's own possession. You have become this people so that you may speak of the wonderful acts of the one who called you out of darkness into his amazing light. Brothers and sisters, God uses death and chaos to bring transformation. Brothers and sisters, God's power is equally evident in death as it is in life. Judges 16 shows us God will use death, the deaths of our brothers and sisters, to have more of an impact than their lives. God uses death and chaos to bring transformation. The power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. I know this is a harsh reality. I know this isn't a feel-good sermon, but we have to alter our perspective of death. German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, that when Christ calls a man or woman into ministry, he bids them come and die. Brothers and sisters, Romans 8.36 says, As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. 
Matthew 16, verse 24 and 25 says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. The Bible teaches us death is a part of God's agenda. And it is only through death that our quality of life is transformed. So when we think about the collective deaths of George Floyd, of Dante Wright, of Micaiah Bryant, of Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, and the countless others that have died recently, and we join their deaths with the deaths of our ancestors, of Medgar Evers, of Jimmy Lee Jackson, of Viola LaRusso, of Fred Hampton, of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, of Malcolm X, and so many countless others. We are reminded that there is no progress without struggle. And the cost of freedom requires someone to pay the price. Brothers and sisters, the power of God is equally present in death as it is in life. And if you're still struggling with this, if you're still having issues with coming to terms with this message, you must realize that the foundation of our faith is built on death. And it's built on the ultimate sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And that God sent his child, which is reflected in so many of the other children that have died. He sent his child so that we could have a better quality of life. He sent his child to transition us from the Old Testament, which symbolizes the Old Covenant, to the New Covenant. He sent his child to die for all of our sins, to die for all of our mess, to die for all of our unfaithfulness. Just like he raised up a judge in the Old Testament, he raised Jesus. And brothers and sisters, although it is not a beautiful message, although this is a solemn message, we are raised up every day to make a sacrifice, whether it be spiritually, whether it be mentally, and sometimes God calls for that sacrifice to be physically. But we are reminded that death isn't the final say-so. But it's through death we do receive eternal life in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, at this time, if you're struggling with this relationship with God and you want a deeper relationship with God, a God that controls the good and the bad, a God that knows the beginning from the end. A God that has your best interest at heart, no matter how bad it gets or what it looks like. Make the decision today to give your life to Christ. To believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that his life sacrifice wasn't in vain. So if you would like to make New Morning Light Baptist Church your church home, we will be glad to welcome you, and I would love to be your pastor. And I would love to help you understand this God that we serve, that uses death to help us have eternal life, and has used the death of his son Jesus so that you can have salvation. Oh, salvation isn't free, 
Somebody paid the price. The old question that asks, must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for you and me. So at this time, I pray that you take up your cross and you follow our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that you can have salvation and have life more abundantly. Amen and God bless you.